Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. It's Naughty Week here at Connecticut Public, and at where we live here, we're diving into marine wildlife along Long Island Sound. Today, we're exploring a tenacious turtle, or rather, a terrapin. Diamondback terrapins is a species of small turtle along the coastline and marsh of Long Island Sound. They were once near extinction. Many of the small turtles were hunted to make a delicacy known as, you guessed it, turtle soup. But they've made a great comeback in our state now that hunting the terrapins has become illegal. Researchers and educators are working to preserve their population. And joining us now is Tim Abbott. He's the manager of high school and adult science education at Soundwaters in Stanford, Connecticut. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining us this morning. Good morning, Catherine, and thank you for having me on. And for our listeners, if you have any questions about the tenacious little diamondback terrapins, give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Tim, before we started research for the show, we really haven't heard about the diamondback terrapin. And I'm wondering if our listeners might be in the same boat. So if you can, or could you start off by describing what they are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so diamondback terrapins are a coastal species, um, primarily living in brackish waters, which for um, people who do not know is a mixture, mixture of salt and fresh water. Um, and they tend to live in these marshy environments. They're smaller turtles um, with males being around five to six inches uh, when fully grown and females nearly double that at about um, nine inches. And they're not a sea turtle species. They resemble more closely a freshwater turtle species with the webbed feet, um, which is part of where the name terrapin comes from. Uh, so they don't have the big flippers, um, but they're very much a, a Connecticut species. And uh, they can be a little bit hard to see. They're a little bit easily spooked, but they are they are certainly around and they're, they're beautiful turtles. I mean, when we uh, first Google some of these photos, not gonna lie, we in the studio were all squealing at how <laughs> adorable these turtles are. And and I love that there are turtles here in Connecticut. And is it rare that we see areas with brackish waters where they live? Um, so in Connecticut, that's really our coastline is entirely brackish water. So um, if we look at Long Island Sound as a whole, it's kind of like a almost a peninsula, but of water. Um, and we have so much water coming down from some of our major rivers, um, particularly Connecticut River, um, where we get this brackish water environment. So really a lot of the water, anything that's not fresh in Connecticut is, is brackish water. Um, so if you go swimming at the beaches in Connecticut, you're, you're in brackish water. And we've been talking about, uh, the, you know, this is a turtle, but it's also called a terrapin. Is, is there a difference between the two? Yeah. So um, in the U.S., generally, people refer to uh, any, any turtle as a turtle. Um, but if you're getting technical, terrapins tend to be those freshwater species where then you'd have turtles and tortoises where turtles are, 
you know, your big uh, sea turtle species with the front flippers and very obvious look to them. And terrapins would be more your pond turtles and your freshwater turtles. And you had earlier described that their habitat, they tend to live in brackish waters, which is one of the reasons why they're so unique. Can you also talk about their makeup and how are they different from the other turtles that we might see? Um, Yeah, so because they do live in brackish water, they have to have some unique adaptations that your pond turtle wouldn't. Um, You know, they're living in water with salt and like many animals, they still need fresh water. So they actually exude uh, salt from their like kind of like specialized tear ducts um, near their eyes. And they also have very powerful jaws. A lot of their a lot of their food is, you know, shelled animals like crabs and snails. um, And they need to be able to crush that stuff. So they, they have very strong jaws. So don't pick them up and have them bite you is what you're saying. <laughs> and- well, ideally, we wouldn't pick them up if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, anyways, you know, it's generally advised that if you see something like that to just kind of leave it be and let it do its uh, let it do its thing. I definitely pick them up a lot um, as part of my my work. But uh, the ones that we have are pretty familiar with human touch. So they're not uh, they're not looking to bite anybody. Well, we'll definitely uh, dive deeper into, you know, what to do if you do see one, um, you know, on land. But you mentioned food. I want to ask, too, you know, is there is their diet different compared to other turtles? Like you mentioned they have a pretty strong jaw, so they need to snap through things. Um, is that common? Um, it is common for, I mean, many turtle species do eat hard-shelled animals, particularly, you know, sea turtles, um, like loggerheads that are out there um, will feed on mollusks. Um, these guys, these guys are not super preferential as far as diet goes. They kind of eat whatever they can get their their mouth on. Um, I've seen them eat fish and and all other kinds of things. They're very fast in the water. Um, you know, a lot of people think of turtles as being a slow animal, uh, but if you ever seen a diamondback terrapin swim, they are they are pretty quick swimmers. Um, so they're very capable of catching prey, and uh, they go through a a crab like a potato chip. Really, it's it's a very quick thing. And you just had to mention potato chip. Now I want some. <laughs> and because the male and female makeup are very different, are their diets different? Do they do they hunt differently or is it the same? Um, they hunt similarly. Uh, they're really the same as far as diet. Uh, the female just definitely needs a lot more. When we feed our, our terrapins, the, the girls get almost double the helping of, of the males, um, as they should. You know, you heard it here. Absolutely. And this is also the season that their eggs start hatching. You know, where, when does that start and where does it start? Um, yes, yeah, so they're primarily um, egg laying June, June, July. Um, we actually had the pleasure of accidentally catching a, a recent hatchling in a, in a net. Um, we go out on the water here and we do uh, uh, staining surveys just as part of a research that we do with students. And uh, we managed to accidentally catch one in a net in a, in a very industrial harbor um, here in Stanford, which is always a very reassuring, reassuring sign. Um, so they are around for sure. And uh, I, I see a lot of them at a, one of our other locations that is a little more uh, natural habitat, but they are definitely around. And so you just mentioned you accidentally caught one. How does that happen? Is this something you just kind of chance upon it or are you looking for in an area and then you happen to to happen upon it? Um, so we definitely keep our eyes peeled for them just as a you know, just to see what's there and if they are there. But uh, so what we do is we have these these large, they're just handheld nets, but uh, they stretch out about 25 um, feet. And primarily we're looking at what kind of species are living on the coast and in what numbers and that kind of thing. And 
we just so happened to get a little diamondback terrapin hatchling in the net. Um, and I've, I've never seen one at the location that we did happen to catch one. Uh, so it was, it was a, quite a surprise, a pleasant surprise. And are there any environmental factors that, that can threaten them, like fellow animals around the area that, that could come and grab their eggs? Um, definitely. So a lot of mammals actually predate on terrapin nests. So things like foxes, raccoons, uh, probably possums if they found it. Uh, as well as bird life, definitely. Um, and we even have minks here, so I, I'm sure that the minks would probably be happy to eat a terrapin egg if they had the chance. Um, and once they're hatchlings, I mean, that's really their most fragile stage. Um, if you've ever held a hatchling, they're not, you know, they're small. The shell's still pretty soft. You have to be really, really gentle with them. Um, and uh, that's that's when they're really at their most sensitive and need to kind of stay out of the uh, line of sight of predators. And can you talk about the history of the diamondback terrapins here in our state? We mentioned earlier that at one point they were being hunted and killed off nearly uh, to extinction. Yeah, so they were what we call extirpated uh, in Connecticut, which is kind of a local extinction. Um, they were essentially hunted to the brink, and uh, they were it was overdone, uh, as humans tended to do, uh, and sometimes still do pretty often. Um, yeah, they were they were nearly gone, and then supposedly, so they say, uh, prohibition saved the terrapin. Uh, one of the main ingredients of turtle soup was sherry, and uh, by not having that available, it made terrapin soup less available. Um, but obviously, in in the more modern times, a lot of work has been done by scientists and uh, nonprofits and the government and lawmakers to make sure that these guys are getting the protection they need, and a lot of efforts are trying to be made to restore. Um, a lot of the habitat habitat loss is probably one of the biggest issues these guys face. And is it illegal to have terrapins as a pet here in Connecticut? Yep. In the state of Connecticut, you cannot, uh, you're not supposed to handle them or grab them. You cannot take them home. Um, unfortunately, anecdotally, it definitely still does happen. We've had uh, folks forfeit their terrapins to us that they've had as pets, whether or not, you know, they may be completely unaware that that's illegal for them to do, but uh, it definitely does happen. And how much does citizen science and activism contribute to bringing back the terrapins? I mean, you kind of uh, went through a little past history, any recent history that you can tell us that helped bring the turtles back? I think it's a it's a major factor. Anytime that, you know, you can bring the general public into helping out um, with any body of science, um, you don't have to be a scientist to help contribute to science um, and conservation as a whole. Um, there are a lot of folks who volunteer to do things like turtle crossings um, and make sure these guys get across the road during their, their nesting seasons. And um, cars are a big issue with these guys, especially if they have to cross roads to get to where uh, they need to be. So there are plenty of folks who definitely volunteer their time and their efforts to make sure um, these guys are getting to where they need to go and getting there safely. Um, and the more people know about it as a whole, I think in general, um, makes a huge difference. Anytime people are educated about and have interacted with something, it, it tends to alter their perspective on that thing and want to uh, want to have a positive influence on it. Right. And I imagine there would be a lot of word of mouth after you had your own experience with it. And so with the education and the awareness, you know, I'm wondering, too, if you can speak to what does it look like in the country in terms of state by state or or the protections on the state level versus national level when it comes to turtles or diamond ter uh, diamondback terrapins? Um, they do seem to be different. Uh, like I said, in Connecticut, they are a protected species. I believe Rhode Island considers them endangered. 
Um, but I know that at least up till relatively recently, some states, I want to say New Jersey and potentially Delaware had um, seasons where they actually allowed them to be captured um, still. I think it was very limited and I can't imagine too many folks were participating in doing that. Um, but I think most states have a, a conservation mind um, towards the turtle. I know it does differ a little bit at the state level. And uh, I just happen to know that you have some diamondback terrapins uh, around you right now. Yeah, can you describe uh, the turtles to us or the terrapins to us, I should say? Absolutely. Yeah, um, I do. I have two diamondback terrapins with me. Um, one of them is a they're both fully grown. Uh, one is an adult male and one is an adult female. Um, and they actually look very different. So one of the things about diamondback terrapins is that there's several subspecies um, and they, they don't all look the same. Um, so I have an adult male here. His name is Jelly. He's got a very yellow um, kind of underside with a pretty gray top. Um, and he's got kind of a generally grayish skin with very dark um, dots all over. And then I have Shakira. She's our adult female. Um, and she's got more of a white toned skin with kind of big lines um, going across her face and then a, a much darker shell. Um, one of the cool things a lot of it's common in marine ecosystems in general, but um, generally bottom colors like the bottom of their shell um, will be a light color. So kind of orange or yellowish uh, where the top looks very dark. So if you're a predator looking for a uh, turtle for a meal, you might look down and see something that looks like a rock. Um, but if you're underneath it, uh, it might actually blend in kind of with more of the sunlight. Um, we call that counter shading. And you see that in some of uh, even the largest animals in the water, like a uh, great white shark, it's a very common scheme in the marine ecosystems. Um, but they're they're really beautiful turtles. They do have very sharp claws. I will say that uh, when you hold them, they tend to kind of push against your hand a little bit, and uh, they are shockingly strong. The females can really almost push your hand, um, even if you're holding, you know, pretty steady. Well, by the way of you describing their strength, I feel like I, I'm obligated to ask that Shakira's claws probably does not lie, does it? No, they definitely do not. <laughs> and we're going to delve into more details about the terrapins, but I would love to uh, to ask you as we end this conversation here, um, what is what are some of the most surprising things you feel about terrapins that people are like, oh, I did not know that? I think in general, just in a lack of awareness, um, you know, so we do, we see about 30,000 students from Connecticut, New York um, each year. And I mean, generally the younger students are absolutely clueless that this turtle is here at all. And often if we have adults around, they, they've they never seen one or, or rarely heard of one. Um, the only time folks tend to know about it is if they know like the University of Maryland, the Terps, um, or if they're from that area, it's a little bit more well-known there. But in, in Connecticut, they're just really not People don't really know about them, um, and especially when they have such a um, a deep history in this this state and uh, one that really has largely been impacted by by people. Um, but they they are absolutely awesome turtles, and I, I'll do a little bit of personification. But they do seem to have uh, they do seem to have some attitudes sometimes, and even uh, quite a bit of personality. As I've gotten to know the ones that we take care of here. Well, we love a little attitude and personality here. You've been listening to Tim Abbott, who's the manager of high school and adult science education at Soundwaters in Stanford. And he'll be staying with us to continue spreading awareness about the amazing Diamondback Terrapins. You can find pictures of the Terrapins on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Got a question about the Terrapins? Or have you seen these turtles where you live? 
Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The Maritime Aquarium recently introduced its Terrapin Tracking Team. They're looking for volunteers and citizen scientists to help track the local Terrapin turtle population here in our state. And preserving their population is no easy task. We are right in the middle of their migratory season. This is a time when they're especially vulnerable to being run over when they cross the road. Why did the Diamondback Terrapin cross the world? That's the age-old question. And what should you do if you do see one trying to cross? Joining us now is Tim Abbott. He's the manager of high school and adult science education at Sound Waters in Stanford, and Jenny Hall, who's a senior aquarist at the Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, good morning. And for our turtle fans, you can give us a call and join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Jenny, you've been listening to the conversation so far. Is there anything that Tim said that jumped out to you that you'd like to respond? I mean, everything he said is very accurate. Um, he mentioned that prohibition is what saved the terrapin, and that's personally my favorite fun fact about terrapins is that their populations were kind of rebounded because of that prohibition era. So I'm glad that came up. <laughs> I'm really glad, too. I never would have thought it's because of Sherry. So (laughs) that's a really fun fact for sure. And and can you talk about talk more about, uh, you know, on top of that, what else has been impacting their population here? Absolutely. So like Tim said, um, habitat loss and coastal changes, absolutely a huge factor. Climate change. Also, road strikes. Uh, They do cross the road to get to their nesting areas. They like to nest in sandy dune areas. So. A lot of times they will have to cross popular roadways by the coast in order to get there. Um, So definitely car strikes is a big threat. And then also getting stuck in lobster traps, old abandoned lobster traps um, that are left in the sound. That's another big issue as well. So I want to come back to both of those points. But when it comes to road crossing, um, what can people do when they do see a turtle crossing a road? Um, And how often does that happen? 
So if you do see any sort of turtle crossing the road, obviously, you know, the best thing to do is stop and, and let it get across the road. If it's safe to do so, it is okay to help them move to the side of the road they're going to. But like Tim said, they have pretty strong jaws and, and sharp nails. So you definitely shouldn't be picking them up if you're not trained or if you don't really know what you're doing. You absolutely should not move them out of the direction that they're going or take them with you. Like Tim said, it, it is illegal to take them out of the wild. So definitely don't want to do that. And it may look like they're going towards an unsafe area, but even if you try to move them to a what you deem a safer area, they're still going to try to go back to where they're heading because they normally are, are on a mission when they're crossing those roads. So definitely either just stop and wait and let them finish crossing or, you know, if you can help them get there. But that's that's the best thing to do. Absolutely. When you mentioned lobster traps, I'm assuming same thing with crab traps. So they get stuck in these in these traps. You know what happens, and and are are they saved, or do you usually find them in these traps? You know what happens. So the males, which are a little bit smaller than the females, unfortunately, are more at risk for this because they have a little bit of an easier time being stuck in there. Unfortunately, they are found deceased. Uh, turtles can't breathe underwater. They can hold their breath for a pretty significant amount of time, but they can't breathe underwater. So if they're not found within a few hours, they typically, unfortunately, will perish in these lobster and crab traps around the sound. And can you also talk about uh, developing on the coastline has impacted their habitat and what is being done to protect the marshlands? Right. So the state and different state departments definitely have a lot of programs to maintain certain areas. You know, certain areas can't be developed or, you know, inhabited by people, um, just identifying key areas that are important to the environment and making sure that those are protected lands. A lot of wetlands and marshes fall in that category. Um, but, you know, with people developing and, and creating homes along the coast, we are taking away from terrapin habitat or we are making it more difficult for them to get to their nesting sites. We're creating more roadways, which is contributing to these strikes and it's making it more challenging when they are losing habitat due to climate change to be able to find new habitat to live in because those areas are already developed. And just a quick note here, Laura on Facebook shares, I see them every time I kayak near Goose Island on the Connecticut River. Took me a while to figure out what the little triangle sticking up above the surface of the water, turtle heads coming up for air. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for painting such a nice picture for us uh, of your experience and speaking of uh, needing air too. Jenny, I want to ask, um, you know, we touched about climate change and you just mentioned, you know, they're changing, their habitat's changing because of development here in Connecticut. Um, do you have any specifics about how climate change itself is changing their habitat here? So climate change will affect coastal shorelines. You know, we might get we might start losing shorelines due to increased tides and higher tides. Um, so that can definitely affect them. I know that they typically try to lay their eggs at high tide. So that way, you know, the eggs are not getting washed away by tide. Um, so obviously, the higher the tides are, the more rainfall we're getting you know, the, these nests are at a risk of being washed away um, and just pollution. They are somewhat resilient to pollution, but pollution definitely can affect them as well. So, you know, increased temperatures also will change, you know, nesting temperatures, which can affect whether they're male or female when they hatch. And so we can kind of get skewed numbers of one sex versus the other. So there's a lot of ways in which climate change and coastal changes definitely affect them and their environment. 
And we've been talking about how the environment impacts them, but how do the Diamondback terrapins contribute to the local ecosystem? Absolutely. So they're part of a very unique ecosystem of living in the salt marshes, and they are part of that ecosystem's food chain. So, you know, like Tim said, they really are not very selective on what they eat. They eat a little bit of everything and keeping, you know, crustaceans and fish species and all that kind of stuff in check. And then they are also a food source for those animals that Tim mentioned, some of those smaller mammals and even birds, gulls, crows. So, you know, being a part of that food chain and being a part of that ecosystem is just very critical. If you take out even one piece of a food chain, the whole thing can kind of go way out of whack. Um, And we've seen that in other ecosystems as well around the country. So they are important to where they live as well. They do contribute to that food chain and to keeping the ecosystem healthy and keep like preserving it. And Tim, I want to bring you back to the conversation. I know you touched on how climate change changes the habitat for uh, diamondback terrapins. Is there anything you want to add to that as well as how they contribute to the local ecosystem? Um, Yeah, I mean, I would just add not necessarily climate change uh, directly, but as a human impact thing, um, we've altered a lot. And uh, one of those things is is really native, like tidal flow. there are so many dams in Connecticut and so many alterations to tidal flow that have uh, impacted salt marshes here. And as soon as you impact water levels and salt marsh, you're directly impacting uh, the Diamondback Terrapins. So there, there's a lot of, it's a very multifactorial issue and uh, climate change is one among many things that, um, that happened to these guys, unfortunately. And so we've also talked about people getting involved and in, in more citizen science and public awareness. Jenny, can you describe your work with the Terrapin uh, Tracking Program? You know, what were the origins of this program and what does the volunteer um, program look like? Yeah, so the um, community science program we have here with the Terrapin Tracking Team is just one of many programs we have. It was developed here with the Department of Transportation, Connecticut Deep, um, and Western Connecticut University. Those four organizations kind of work together to do that program. And um, the goal of it is to monitor roadways where terrapins are likely to be. And we're monitoring them for maybe car crash strike victims. We're also looking for terrapins that we actively see crossing roads or nesting near roads. Um, So we're monitoring their population and, and monitoring trends in their population. And are there popular spots around Connecticut where you see the most of these um, these actions, if you will? Yeah, so there are about 15 roadways. They're all kind of in like the southern, by the coast of Connecticut, pretty much west of the Connecticut River is, is where we stay. Um, so there's about 15 roadways down there that were monitored last year. Um, seven of the roadways actually had the nests on them. and a number of live terrapins were seen around or on the roadways. Unfortunately, there are also a number of deceased terrapins that we found on the roadways. Um, but down by, I know one that I've gone to before is Sherwood Island State Park in, in Westport. That's a popular place because you have marshy environments around there as well as the, the sand dunes and where they like to lay their eggs. And since it is such a public park, um, you know, you get a lot of traffic and, and, and cars going through there. So that's, that's a spot that I know that we've monitored in the past. And can you talk about the impact that the uh, the citizen science are making and as well as for maybe our listeners who would like to be involved, you know, where can they sign up and what can they expect? Absolutely. So going on the Maritime Aquarium website, following us on social media, we have an 
e-newsletter you can sign up for as well that you can find through our website. Uh, you have to be 18 years old or if you're younger, accompanied by an adult. Um, and we do a training session in the spring to kind of, you know, learn how to collect that data and to be assigned a roadway to monitor. Um, and then we typically monitor weekly. We ask that our participants monitor weekly from April to August. And um, yeah, the impact is significant. I mean, the data we've gotten is going to help us, you know, over the years track where they are and trends and might be able to make a difference in, you know, how these roadways are used if if we can, you know, if we can put up more signage or just make sure that people are aware that they are more populated areas where terrapins are, you know, can make a big difference for for the number of fatalities we see every year. And Tim, we've been talking about turtles crossing the roads and and how dangerous it can be for both people and for turtles, really. And one problem um, we're seeing is, you know, they're they're trying to get to the beach. They have to cross a road, and and obviously this can result in them being run over or being injured. So according to the Wildlife of Connecticut, you know, eggs are laid in June or July in sandy soil that borders uh, salt marshes, and females migrating from their water home to a nesting site are vulnerable to being run over as they cross roads. So, you know, as we talk about more education, more awareness, and, and just to be, just to know that this could happen when you're driving on the road, are there other things that are being done to prevent that? Um, you know, I'm, in, I'm kind of in southwestern Connecticut, and I haven't seen a ton as far as, like, road crossings in, in my particular area. Um, I know there are some close by here, um it's it's really tough around here because everything is so urban and so built up um and i mean where i am anecdotally uh the environments there are somewhat contained because of all the infrastructure around so anything that they'd actually want to lay eggs in where i am uh there's walls and foundations and all kinds of stuff kind of closing that off almost uh, from the roads so i actually don't see a lot of it in my particular area um but I think education in and of itself, just people uh, hearing about it is one tool or one method of kind of avoiding some of that stuff happening in the first place. And Tim, at your organization, Soundwaters, you have a few terrapins in your care, and you very beautifully described two of them uh, at our earlier segment, uh, Shakira and Jelly. Can you describe how these terrapins ended up at your facility? Yeah, so um, we do have, uh, Shakira was a forfeiture, so somebody had been um, taking care of her in their own home. Um, and unfortunately, it's really hard to provide the environment that's outside, inside, uh, especially with an animal like that, that has such a varied diet um, and has such specific requirements as far as water and how the salinity is and the temperature of the water. Um, so they realized that she was not doing well, um, and she came to us from that. Um, Jelly, on the other hand, has a slightly different story uh, where a gentleman was caught smuggling turtles in a airport in Anchorage, Alaska. He had about um, something like 200 turtles of 11 different species, uh, 22 of which were diamondback terrapins. Um, and we were contacted by wildlife officials there. They knew that we'd be able to house these guys. So Jelly came to us. He's probably just a little bit bigger than a quarter. Um, when we when we first got him, we had 22 little hatchlings, um, and he was among that group, and we were able to get him healthy. A lot of them, unfortunately, um, the, the gentleman had them stuffed into a boot in his luggage, I believe. So a lot of them uh, had quite a bit of illness to deal with. Um, 
And still some of them have some impacts from that with some kidney issues. Um, but most of them come from that. The ones that we have come from that kind of thing. We don't have any that have been taken from the wild and, and put inside. Um, they're all from really humans interacting with them in a, in a negative way. And we will be uh, talking in more detail about smuggling in our next next segment. And we only got about a minute here left. But I would still like to ask you to, you know, speaking of 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 um, animals in the wild, I think generally you're not allowed to release them back, right? And is there a is there a rule against that? You know, why why are the reasons that you can't release them back in the wild? So the biggest reason that we always advise people not to release animals that they've had as pets back into the wild is because they typically don't know how to hunt um, or how to forage, and they typically aren't aware of predators. You know, they weren't brought up in their natural environment, so they don't understand or they don't know. They haven't learned all the risks involved with it. So they definitely are just more at a risk for predation and also of starvation if they don't know how to hunt. And I, I would add to that that in our case, um, you know, terrapins range the entirety of the or most of the East Coast and then even a little bit into the Gulf of Mexico. And there's um, a whole bunch of subspecies. And if we were to release the 22 that we had we had gotten, it's hard to say where their genetics were from. And you're you're introducing, you know, genetics potentially from other areas into an area where that those genetics may not have been at one point. Um, and anytime you do that kind of thing, that can who knows what can happen. That's something that uh, that we've had issues with the introducing different species and that kind of thing. So uh, you always have to be careful with that. Well, we're glad that Shakira and Jelly found a good life with you guys. You've been listening to Jenny Hall, who's a senior Aquarius at the Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk, and Tim Abbott, manager of high school and adult science education at Soundwaters in Stanford. Thank you both so much for talking Terrapin with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. Happy to be here. And next, we hear about how turtle smuggling is impacting the turtle population in Connecticut. Do you have a question about terrapins? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we've been talking about the diamondback terrapin. This small turtle is found along our coastlines, and their population has made a comeback. This tenacious little guy is the only turtle that lives in brackish waters, which is a mix of fresh and salt water. And unfortunately, there's a lot putting these species at risk. We now have Mike Ravisi, who's a wildlife biologist and herpetologist at the Connecticut Department of Environmental and Energy Protection to continue our conversation about these amazing terrapins. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us this morning. Hey, Catherine. Thanks for having us on. And for our turtle fans, you can give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Mike, tell us about your interest in terrapins. You know, how did you get started in wanting to study these species, and what does your work look like with them? Sure. As far as the interest, I think I probably got into it the same way a lot of other wildlife biologists have, where you kind of had the innate interest growing up as a kid. And I was fortunate enough to live near places where I could get out in nature and experience nature directly. 
So from a really young age, I always had the interest and the long and short of it is I, you know, didn't realize that you could do this stuff for a job. Uh, but once I found out that you could, I kind of never looked back and um, was fortunate enough to become involved in the field. And why terrapins specifically? Was there a, a moment where you discover them and you're like, oh my God, that's it? I think it's because they are fascinating the way that they survive and the way that they use the environment. The fact that these animals do not produce their own body heat, but they can survive the winters of New England and that they occur in such a wide range throughout the United States as well. And uh, I know you just mentioned your interest in them, and we've had such a lovely conversation so far about the uniqueness of the terrapins. And you have said previously that you were initially interested in reptiles and amphibians. So what made you focus on the terrapins? So as far as the work in Connecticut, they are, as uh, some folks have mentioned earlier, they are a state-listed species. They are special concern status here in Connecticut. And so a lot of the work that I do involves protection and management of listed species and listed reptiles and amphibians in particular. And so, you know, we there was the need to kind of prioritize those species in my program versus other species. And uh, the need kind of came up where there's a lot of knowledge and information on the species in other states and direct research that had been done with them. And there were some questions about their movement ecology and about just their overall habits that we didn't know in Connecticut here directly. And so we wanted to kind of delve in and find out some more information about the species within our state, because while they are the same species in Rhode Island and Massachusetts and throughout other parts of their range, they do slightly different things in different places. And so what does your field research look like and your research working for deep? I'm sure a lot of us also are in the same in the same boat of like, oh, I did not know you can do that for a living. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of different projects we have going on with terrapins here in Connecticut. Um, as Jenny mentioned, we have the terrapin tracker project where we're monitoring the road hotspots for where there's more mortality of the species and, and trying to identify places that we might be able to mitigate that. Uh, there's also a project with partners at the at Western Connecticut State University in the graduate program over there. There's a graduate student, his name is John Michael Arnett in Dr. Theodore Pinu's lab. And he's looking at the at these same populations where the road mortality study is happening. He's an integral part of that as well. He's looking at the sex ratio in these populations to see if there's any kind of skew of male versus female. And the idea being that if females are the ones that are more likely to cross roads and therefore get hit crossing roads, is there uh, therefore a skew in the ratio of those males to females? And it sounds like there are so many movements within all of these programs and you wear many hats because you're also part of a group called the Collaborative to Combat the Illegal Trade in Turtles. So this is people actually smuggling turtles. What does that look like and are you seeing it still? Sure. So a lot of times I think people, when they think of poaching or illegal animal trade, I think they often think of elephants and rhinos overseas. And while that's true that that does happen as well, Poaching does happen uh, in North American species, and it does happen right here in our own backyards. And as far as concern and market, turtles are definitely a big part of that illegal market, uh, North American turtles included, unfortunately. And so that's something that, you know, not only here in Connecticut, but also throughout the region that we're all working together to try to learn more about it and then to try to mitigate it as much as we can. And this seems to be an obvious question, but 
why why is that bad? You know, is I, they were once hunted to extinction. Is that still a concern, or is are there other uh, issues here? Sure. So there's a couple of reasons why it's a problem. For one, because of all these other threats that are affecting turtle populations already. When you layer illegal activity, illegal poaching on top of that, there's a synergistic impact where it kind of accelerates the decline in different populations. And the turtles, in particular, including terrapins, but turtles of all species. Uh, what makes them most biologically vulnerable to poaching is the fact that they are slow uh, to reproduce, that it takes them 10 years sometimes to reach sexual maturity. And that nature of their life cycle makes it so that it, it takes them a while to basically replace themselves in the population. Sometimes it can take a turtle's entire life of 20 to 40 years to have one single offspring reproduce itself in the population. And you mentioned too that when when people think about poaching or or illegal trades, we think about things that happen internationally, not necessarily here in the United States. But can you talk about how prevalent it actually is here, um, as well as in Connecticut, that we're seeing people contribute to the illegal turtle trade? So unfortunately, it definitely happens in the United States uh, again with North American species, uh, but it is a global market. So you you will see North American. Turtle species get collected from the United States and then shipped to all different corners of the world, including shipped within the United States as well. So there's a lot of different market players out there, and it's something where it's a it's a big enough problem that you know we, we're aware of numerous cases, but I'm sure that's just kind of the surface level. There's a lot that we probably don't know either, and unfortunately, a lot of these cases don't involve just one or two turtles. They will involve dozens, hundreds, or sometimes even thousands of turtles being smuggled. And that was touched on in an earlier conversation where I think we we learned that at one point, you know, 200 plus turtles were were smuggled. Can you kind of describe how they're being smuggled and harvested? You know, are we talking about eggs being taken or the actual turtles and why are people trading them? Sure. So uh, there's a number, basically any life stage of turtles uh, are being found in these illegal markets. Eggs are are collected and traded. Uh, The young ones, hatchlings are traded as well as adults. And it's again, it's a particular problem for adults because they're the ones that are the sexually mature individuals that can contribute to uh, reproducing in the population. And the loss of even a single adult in really imperiled populations can put that population at greater risk of extinction. So it's a big problem as far as the turtles being collected. And again, there's a number of different species that are collected and traded, including terrapins. And there's a lot of different reasons why they are being collected. It depends on kind of where they're being traded and, and where they're going. But uh, the uses can range from traditional medicine in some countries to food. They get eaten. They Their parts will get used for decoration sometimes. And another one is uh, illegal pet markets as well. And you mentioned this earlier and just now how the sexual maturity of the turtles is a, is a large impact and it disrupts the population and it takes so long uh, for them to, to reproduce. So it sounds like repopulating the turtle population, uh, especially in the wake of turtle smuggling, is not an easy task. No, there, it, there's a, it's a major issue for sure. And a lot of times, you know, the like folks said earlier today, the, having the habitat for them to just kind of reproduce on their own naturally and, and have have the habitat available for them to do so is one of the biggest things. So keeping those protected areas intact is a, is a huge factor there. And also just making sure that they have 
just the factors that they need in the wild and any way that we can address any of the threats to them, we're looking to do that. And because we're focusing this conversation about about different threat, which is the smuggling, and can you talk about you know what does that literally look like? I feel like smuggling a turtle seems like a hard thing to hide, but you mentioned some of these were st- or we had an earlier conversation where it was described that they were stuck in a boot. You know, is that common? Yeah, unfortunately, it's a really gut wrenching thing to look at, and there are photos, you know, attached to a lot of these known cases where you can look at them online and and see turtles that are smuggled in boots. They get they get thrown into boxes and shipped in large quantities, oftentimes kind of cramped in with other individuals. And you know, if you're trying to smuggle something through an airport or some other means, and if you just have a turtle in a box, it's you're going to hear it moving around because the claws are going to be on the side of the box. So a lot of times, unfortunately, these turtles get uh, restrained. So they'll get put into socks or their legs will get duct taped to the sides of their body. So these are really inhumane conditions these animals are facing. And are there things being done to deter this? You know, are there laws against this? And I'm kind of curious because how, are they enforced or can they be enforced? Sure. There are numerous laws that prohibit the collection and trade of turtles. Uh, there's federal laws with the Endangered Species Act. There are there are state laws. Uh, there's other federal law uh, of trans you know that cover transportation of individuals between states, and that's the Lacey Act. And then there's regulations that cover trade, including international trade, uh, as well. So there's a lot of regulations out there, and there's a lot of law enforcement that happens for sure. Law enforcement folks are doing an excellent job of interdicting and and mitigating these. Um, but a lot of times people just will try to work around them. Well, and you say there's there's a lot of policies out there, which is really, really good to hear. Um, but are turtles top of mind for law enforcement? I think it kind of follows the train of thought earlier where we we're saying, you know, when we hear about poaching or illegal trade, we tend to think about the bigger animals. So are turtles prioritized at, at any point? Turtles are definitely on the radar, certainly. And I think that the more that we can get that message out that these are species that are involved in illegal trade, I think... We, we can constantly do that, but they are definitely on the radar. And I think that this is definitely something where there's kind of gaining momentum, where you hear more stories being published in mainstream media of illegal collection cases. And this is another obvious question, I feel like, too. But, you know, as you hear about these stories or as you sort of witness this happening, you know, are is there anything that surprises you um, when when you see these cases, or or just something that you would like to you know tell our listeners um, something that you've learned from this experience? Sure, I think as far as the surprise factor, I think the volume is something that is really disturbing and and surprising as well. Where you just it's hard to fathom the fact that there can be hundreds or thousands of turtles collected uh, in a single case, and and when you actually see that in person, it's kind of mind boggling to just wrap your brain around it. So I would definitely tell people like this is this is happening. Definitely want to get that message out that this is a situation that occurs out there. And also kind of to dovetail with the conversation that happened earlier, definitely if, you know, as far as what the general public can do, leave turtles be, appreciate them in the wild. Um, you know, don't don't release your pet turtles if you have them. And if you see anything suspicious going on, if you think that somebody might be doing something they shouldn't as far as collecting turtles, feel free to reach out to law enforcement, either local or at the um, state level with environmental law enforcement. And can you quickly talk about, are there turtle laws nationally versus locally in in the state? 
There's both. So every state has individual laws that cover uh, different endangered species. And then as far as the federal law, there are laws that cover certain listed species and the transportation of species between states as well. And uh, you've been listening to this conversation to this hour, and I would love to get your thoughts on, you know, were there anything that jumped out to you? Did you learn anything? Or would you like our listeners to to know something that we haven't talked about today? You know, the beauty of this stuff is that we're always learning. So that's fantastic. And I'm glad to to know that there's so many different partner groups out there doing great work and turtles, both in Connecticut and throughout the United States. Uh, <laughs> and as far as what people can learn, I think, you know, there's, while it's, a lot of threats going on for the turtles and, and that they're they're very resilient and they are still here. Um, you know, I don't want there to be too much negative information where at the end of the day, these turtles are very important parts of our natural heritage in Connecticut. And I think it's, it's, it's a very exciting thing to be able to see them in the wild. And so when people encounter them in the wild, definitely go ahead and appreciate them. They're they're very neat species. And is there anything people can do to help prevent turtle smuggling or turtle crossings? You know, I feel like we we did touch on this in the earlier conversations, but just want to reiterate, you know, when do we know whether or not we should touch them or grab them when we think that we're going to you know, take them to safety? Sure. I think when in doubt, definitely leave them be. The road situation, the road crossing situation is a little bit different where that can be something that's a little bit more dire for individual turtles. Again, that's definitely a situation where people want to make sure that for the humans that you're being safe and that it's safe for you to uh, move a turtle in the appropriate direction. But other than that, I think just having the awareness of some of these issues at hand is um, one of the most powerful things. And, and again, just to be able to enjoy these species in their natural environment. Well, it's been a pleasure talking turtles with you. You've been listening to Mike Ravisi, who's a wildlife biologist and herpetologist at the Connecticut Department of Environmental and Energy Protection. Thank you so much, Mike, for uh, helping us spread awareness today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us on. And you can find pictures of the Diamondback Terrapins on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. And dive into all of the nautical-themed stories airing this week on Connecticut Public's original talk shows by visiting ctpublic.org slash naughtyweek. That's N-A-U-T-I week. And coming up on Thursday and Friday, we're talking sturgeon and jellies. Don't you dare call them jellyfish. You can check them out at ctpublic.org slash where we live to see all of our Naughty Week content in one place. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>